And with that, please turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. We will read Matthew chapter 6 beginning in verse 1 and then drop down to verse 5. And as you're turning there, I'd like to say thank you once again to everybody who asked questions over the last 10 weeks. I, I felt like that we had some good questions and some good learning. And so thank you for that. Um, I, w- I was asked a question along the way of, um, you know, some of these things that we talked about aren't uh, there explicitly in the scriptures. And I refer you back to the first chapter of the confession of faith that reminds us that everything we need for life, specifically for salvation, is either explicitly there in the scriptures or available to us through good and necessary consequence of study. And so while some of the things we talked about aren't explicitly said in Scripture, they are there through this good and necessary study that God has provided for us. So today, as we turn toward praying, let us look to Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and then we'll go to verse 5. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then to verse five. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will will reward you. And when you pray... Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, as we approach your word, teach us, change us, speak to us. Help us know you better. Help us know ourselves better. And help us see where Jesus fills that gap between us and you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will be beginning today a study of the Lord's Prayer. Today we'll actually focus on verses 5 through 8, although I read all the way through to the end. We'll look at Jesus' uh, kind of general direction on prayer today in in verses 5 through 8. And then we'll consider and slow down as we go through the Lord's Prayer itself. We'll talk about what it means to pray to our Father in heaven. We'll talk about what it means to pray for his kingdom to come. And we'll talk about why uh, the uh, ending to the Lord's Prayer that many of us are familiar with, and thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, is found in the footnotes rather than in the text. But today what I want us to do is to begin and ask you the question, how is your prayer life? Matthew 6, 1 through 18 is found here in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which begins in chapter 5, verse 1, and 
runs through the end of chapter 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens with the Beatitude, talks about, gives us characteristics of those who would be blessed, talks about uh, the people of God being salt and light in the world, talks about Jesus fulfilling the law rather than abolishing it. And then it goes through and gives us some correctives on the teaching of the day in relationship to the law. It reminds us that the law is much a heart issue as it is an action issue. And then as he gets to chapter six, he deals with three issues of religious piety. Now, piety is these religious practices that many of us go through on a daily basis. And in the Jewish religion of the time, they have three activities that showed that you were a very pious person, a very religious person. First, the giving to the needies, to the needy, prayer and fasting. And Jesus opens up this section and gives us a guideline on how to practice these things. The assumption we'll see, especially with prayer, as we look at that, the assumption is that you will continue to practice these things. But there is a guideline to practicing giving prayer and fasting. And that is found in verse one of chapter six. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. He applies this to giving by making sure that you're not touting or blowing your own horn when you get when you give to the needy, when you give your alms in fasting, he says, make sure that you try not to look somber as you fast. Make sure that you're taking good care of yourself because um, the practice of the day oftentimes was to try and make yourself look as weak and as hungry as possible because you know what? I am fasting right now and I can just barely move. Jesus says, don't do those things. And so as we begin to consider prayer, I ask you once again, how is your prayer life? As we seek to look at prayer today, we're going to look at the call to pray, marked by the words, when you pray. We're going to look at some wrong motives in prayer that Jesus points out, and we're going to look at the only motive that matters in prayer, which is worship. First off, the call to pray, marked by the words, when you pray. I tried to highlight this as we ran through, as we read through the passage, but did you notice That the phrase, when you pray, shows up at least three times in verses 5 through 8. The assumption here on Jesus' part is that the people of God will be a praying people. He doesn't say, if you pray. He doesn't say, if you think about it and pray. He says, when you pray. Jesus' assumption here is that the child of God... The one who has been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ will be a person who engages in the regular practice of prayer. Now, we could say that a regular practice of prayer would be somebody who prays once a year, as long as he always prays on January 1st at 10 o'clock in the morning. That would be a regular practice of prayer. But we have to qualify the regular practice of prayer by what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, which is to pray continually, to make prayer an active and regular part of your life and of your day. 
The child of God should be marked by prayer. Brothers and sisters, if we carry nothing else home from this sermon other than this one thing, take this with you. You should be a person of prayer. Jesus' ministry was marked by prayers. As you read through the Gospels, specifically in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see that Jesus spent a lot of time in private prayer. When the crowds were pressing close, he took time to get away to pray. In John 17, we have a beautiful picture of Jesus' prayer for his disciples, showing a ministry of public prayer as well. And if our Lord and Savior needed time in prayer, the one who was fully God and fully human in one person, how much more do you and I need to spend in prayer, both private and public? We talk of revival in our church and in our nation. The most effective driver of revival in the church is not special meetings or special music. It's not changing how we do our morning worship, although that's not necessarily bad at times. The most effective driver for revival in the church is prayer. Do you pray for the regular ministry of the church? Do you pray for Sunday school? Do you pray for outreach? Do you pray for worship? Do you pray Dare I call for me? Do you pray? Jesus says, when you pray, assuming that we will be a praying people. But when we pray, he also points out to us some wrong motives in prayer. I see two motives that he points out here. The first is don't be like the hypocrite. Now, it's interesting that hypocrite oftentimes, especially in Matthew, has a tendency to be synonymous with the Pharisee. And our temptation here is to apply this only to those people who are outwardly and boldly hypocritical in their prayer. Much like the, the Pharisee in that parable in Luke who stood there and said, God, look at how holy I am. I am so much holier than that poor, wretched sinner over there. How could you pay attention to him? Look at me. That's who we have a tendency to apply this to. But I think this drives a little bit deeper than merely the hypocrite. See, the hypocrite is not only the one who stands in the front of the assembly, stands in the place of importance. And praise. It's not only we, we have this picture here of the one who prays on the street corner is the person who is just, man, I've got to get to the, I've got to get to church so I can pray. Hey everybody, I'm headed to church so that I can pray. Oh my goodness, I can't wait to get to church. I'm just gonna pray right here on the street corner. Oh Lord, look how glorious I am. I need to pray so much that I can't even wait to get to church. And many times each and every one of us are like that because what this shows us is that the hypocrite is not focused on God in his prayer. Who is he focused on? Himself. Absolutely. He is focused on whether or not people see him praying. He is focused on whether or not people know that he is so holy that he prays everywhere he goes. 
or she, because the temptation is there for you as well, ladies. In our modern day parlance, this would be the person, if you're on social media, who posts that perfectly posed picture of their Bible in a spiritual book in a in a mug with either coffee or tea with just the right Instagram filter on it to let you know that I had a special time today in my morning devotions. It's that person who brags about how holy they are in their prayer life. It's the person who looks through the biographies of the saints and sees that they were holy and completely devoted to prayer. And so they say, okay, I will work up to make sure that I am praying four or five hours a day so that God sees me as holy. No, brothers and sisters, we don't pray so that God sees us as holy. We pray because we are holy. We don't pray focusing upon ourselves. We pray focusing on God. As we approach God in prayer, we empty ourselves. We try and seek not to be like the hypocrite. But Jesus doesn't give the hypocrite grief on their prayer. He also moves on to the pagan. For the pagan, he says, don't go on babbling. In the authorized version, the King James Version, it says vain repetitions. It says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagan, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to start with verses 26 through 29, but I'm going to have you hold your finger there for a few minutes after we read that as well. Let me give you the picture of what we're looking at here. Elijah is a prophet of God called to the northern kingdom of Israel. Ahab is a king who has been worshiping Baal. And Elijah proposes a contest. And he says, get all the prophets of Baal together, have them build an altar, put the wood and the animal on top of it and have them pray to Baal and see if Baal will send fire. He said, and then I'll do the same thing and I'll pray to God and we'll see which God sends fire. So we're in first Kings 18, beginning in verse 26, the middle of verse 26. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said, surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. In pagan thought, both back in the time of Elijah and even during the time of Jesus, the thought was that the more words you spoke, The louder you spoke, the more animated you were in the means by which you prayed, the more attention you would get from the God to whom you were praying. Oftentimes today we fall into this trap when we think of something we want. And instead of seeing God as the one who provides all of our needs, we see God as the one who stands in the way of what we desire. 
And so we think that what we need to do in our prayer is to say just the right thing in just the right order with just the right voice inflection and feigned humility. And God will move out of our way so that we can have a clear path to that which it is that we want. This, brothers and sisters, is what it means to be like the pagan. Jesus warns us, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the pagans. Remain there in in 1 Kings 18 and look down at verse 36. He says, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And in these words and in Jesus's words, we see that the one true focus of prayer is worship, is God. See, Elijah didn't go forward with fancy words. He didn't go forward with slashing And bleeding and yelling and shouting, trying to wake God up. He very quietly reminded God of the promises that he had given. Reminded God that he would be glorified if he answered Elijah's prayer. Reminded God that he was the covenant God of Israel. And God heard an answer for Elijah, for Jesus, for us. The only motive and focus of our prayer should be worshiping of the Lord God Almighty. In our passage today from Matthew, we see this in two ways. The first is exclusion. As we move forward, I got these two categories from Martin Lloyd-Jones and his excellent work on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And these categories came from him. The first is exclusion. Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites standing on the street corners or standing on the front of the synagogues. He says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The idea here, the the word translated room carries with it an architectural term of storeroom. This was the only room in a house that would have been locked or lockable during this time. It's where all your food and stuff was stored for the winter after the harvest was brought in. It was a place that nobody really went into except during those times of the day when you needed to go get stuff to make dinner, to make lunch, to make supper, to make breakfast. It was a place where you could go and find privacy. It's a place where you could exclude the outside world from seeing you pray. Now, now this is not a call against public prayer. There are plenty of examples. We have Elijah's example in 1 Kings 18. We have Solomon's example in in, in 1 Kings 8. We have Jesus' own example that we've mentioned already in John 17 of public prayer. So this is not a, a prohibition against public prayer. This is a reminder to exclude others from our thoughts when we're in prayer, or at least what they think about us. We're not to be sitting there thinking, okay, wow, Michelle's going to think I'm really holy today because I'm praying. 
We're to sit there and think about God. But we're not only to exclude others from our prayers, we're to exclude ourselves. Prayer is not about me. Prayer is about going to the Father and seeking His will to be done. To seek His kingdom come, His will be done in earth, in my life, as it is in heaven. We are to exclude others and ourselves from prayer. We are also to realize as well. Exclusion and realization are the two things. What must we realize? We must realize that we are in the presence of God. Prayer is communion with the God of the universe, the one who created all things, the one who provides all things, the one who is sovereign over all things, who is in control of all things. That is the one in whom that is the one whose presence we are in when we pray. Prayer is coming to the sovereign throne of the king of the universe. We must also realize that God is father. Three times in this passage, Jesus refers to the father being the one who sees. The one who knows. The one who works. God sees those who approach him in secret. God rewards those who seek him in worship and seek his will. What is the ultimate reward that we seek? It's communion with God. We have that through Jesus. We have that through through prayer. We have communion with God. And we must realize that God as father knows what we need even before we ask. Notice there, I think Jesus is very intentional in his words. I know Jesus is intentional with his words. You don't need me to tell you that he is God. But he says that he knows what we need. Not what we want. Brothers, that has brothers and sisters that has huge implications for you and me. Because there's a lot of things I want. A lot of good things. A lot of relief from bad things. And yet God knows what I need. And sometimes what I need is to be left in difficulty. Sometimes what I need is the hard work of sanctification in my life that comes through struggle. That comes through difficulty. That comes through the hard times and the hard places in this life. God, the good, good father knows what I need before I even come to him. It's it's a reminder that I am safe in his presence. Because he knows what I need and he's willing to give it to me. Jesus expectation is that we will be a praying people. We have looked at wrong motives in prayer. We have seen that worship is the only true motive. To our prayer, brothers and sisters, each and every one of us are going to struggle with these two categories, the categories of hypocrisy and the category of manipulation, that pagan manipulation. Romans chapter. Oh, it's either eight, five or five, eight. I'm sorry. Write both of them down. Look them up later. You can tell me which one it was. But it talks about the prayers of the saints ascending to heaven. I think it's eight, five. Pretty sure. The prayers of the saints ascending to heaven. 
and being mixed with the incense from the altar. Folks, that's a reminder that my prayers, that your prayers more often than not are tainted by these two categories that we have here. But before they get to God, they get to the altar. That altar is a picture that should take us back to first or to Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah is there in the throne room of God. He is flat on his face because he has realized the holiness of God in comparison to his own sinfulness means that he deserves to be unmade, to be disintegrated. And the angel goes to the altar and from the altar removes the tool of his redemption. Places that coal, that tool upon Isaiah's lips and says, look, you have been cleansed. You have been redeemed. The means of our redemption is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Part of his work as intercessory is to be that altar of incense that that mingles with our prayers so that our prayers are now worthy to approach the throne room of God. Where we are hypocritical, where we are manipulative in our prayers, he prayed perfectly. Seeking not his own glory, but God's glory, seeking not his will, but God's will. And our prayers are covered with his righteousness, with his glory, so that we may be assured that even though we struggle with worshiping ourselves and seeking to manipulate God, we know that our prayers reach the throne room of God. We are to be a praying people. Wrong motives in prayer are pointed out and worship is the only true motive. Do you know prayer is a litmus test for us as a Christian? How you view prayer and more importantly how you pray reveals what you believe about God. We have these confessions of truth, whether it's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Confession of Faith. We have these things that we verbally profess But more than any theological exam, prayer shows what we truly believe about God. Is he the sovereign king? Is he the good father? Is he the shepherd who takes care of us? Or is he an obstacle to what we want? Is he an obstacle to our desires and to our glory? Your prayers will show whether you view God as someone who is at your beck and call. Or whether you view God as the heavenly father's whose name is to be hallowed. If I asked you to pray aloud today, what would your prayers reveal about what you believe about God? Let us pray. Our Lord and Father above, we ask that you humble us as we approach your throne. Remind us that you are working to make our desires your desires. That you are seeking to be in communion with us. You are seeking and through Christ you are in communion with us. And remind us that our prayers reveal what we think about you and worshiping you. Help us as we continue our study in the Lord's Prayer. To be changed in such a way that we no longer seek our own glory in prayer. And that we no longer seek to manipulate you through our prayers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.